BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Today, I'm talking to Kara Lowenthal. Kara is a master certified coach with a BA from Yale and a JD from Harvard Law. In the last three years, after pivoting from a legal career, she has grown her life coaching business from zero to seven figures. She's the host of the iTunes top-rated self-help self-help podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, which has been downloaded over 5 million times, and she's been featured in outlets like Marie Claire, Mind Body Green, MSN.com, and The Huffington Post. I am low-key obsessed with Kara. I told her so in the beginning of the podcast. She is just a smart woman. She is badass, and I love, love her approach to retraining our brains into better thinking, better feeling, and better living. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. There's so much value here. And you guys, I really highly recommend that you go check out her podcast, Clearly 5 Million downloads. She doesn't need my help. But when I listen to any of her episodes, I have like one epiphany after another after another, and they're pretty short and they're manageable and they are just so, so helpful. On another note, if you like this podcast and you want to support what I'm doing, please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe in the iTunes app. Such a simple little thing that really goes a long way in supporting this. Enjoy the episode. I'm Arielle Laurie, and this is the Blonde Files Podcast, where I talk to experts, influencers, and inspirational people in the world of wellness and beyond. Okay, so I'm here with Kara Lowenthal. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm just so I proud of so you proud. for getting my name right. <laughs> we had to give it a second just to <laughs> let it. Yeah, marinate. to like... Let it echo because so many people I come on their podcast, no offense to any of my previous hosts, but they're like, I'm such a big fan. Here's Cara Lowenthal. And I'm like, I know I did that yesterday. I'm guilty on my Instagram. And as soon as I said it, I was like, damn it. I knew Caught yourself. Though. And That's then I was all like, well, I can't go back and like delete the past three stories. So I just have to like have a moment of humility and <laughs> take mm-hmm. accountability. Anyway, I'm really obsessed with you. Just not in a creepy way, (laughs) but I have kind of gone down like a deep black hole of your podcast. It is. (laughs) That's the experience I like people to have, just kind of over into the void. I feel like even just in the last couple days, there have been so many episodes that where I've had like one epiphany after another, after Mm -hmm. another, you're very concise to the point and um, you're so articulate and like so good at communicating, um, valuable information that we can all benefit from. So if anybody who's listening hasn't listened to Unfuck Your Brain, listen to this episode first and then (laughs) go over. 
catch up on yeah, the back. So catalog. I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, me too. So I always like to rewind a little bit with my guests and just mm-hmm. get some context. So um, you have a very impressive pedigree, I'll say, and <laughs> like a well-bred, yeah, pretty much, and, <laughs> and an impressive career. But I want to rewind and talk about like younger Kara and like what did you want to mm-hmm. do? Like when I was yeah. really young. Um, it's funny because I realized the other day that maybe in my, not like when I was six, I just wanted to be like left alone to read books when I was a little girl, you know, and the teachers always be like, go play at recess. Recess isn't for reading books. And I'd be like, I don't see why not. Like, why can't I just sit in the corner and read my books? Um, but I remember in high school just thinking like, why can't I? Like, you know, I had this idea that, like, in Europe, there were public intellectuals, like people who just get paid for their opinions. And I was like, why can't someone just pay me for my musings on life? And then just recently I was like, oh, no, wait, they do. <laughs> like, that happened. But I had to go through some other things first. But, um, I, yeah, I never really had a, like, I'm going to be a ballerina. I'm going to be an astronaut. Like, I don't know what I thought when I was younger. Um, but then in my teens, I got very involved in feminist work and reproductive rights work. And that was my career before I became a coach. So... I was pretty kind of single-mindedly focused on that starting from like age 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious because I feel like when people get into like a helping profession, which coaching is, Mm. it's usually, or or maybe not usually, but very often because they've had their own personal experience or challenge Mm -hmm. that they've overcome. So I was wondering if you had anything Mm. like that in your story or if you just kind of naturally... Um, transitioned. I mean, I think I had the challenge of having a human brain, which (laughs) most of us have, which is the biggest challenge there is. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh, I had like this one traumatic experience I overcame. It really was more like I was always interested in, in high school, I think it manifested more as being interested in philosophy and like concepts of the good life. Like if I look back at my a high school yearbook which I did recently I was it's like you think you've grown and changed so much I totally have but I like look back and the quote was like just basically like what is the good life and I was like oh that's I've been obsessed <laughs> with the same thing since I was 18 so I think in that it was in that context that was what I was interested in and then I went I was interested in psychology I was just always looking for I think I just always had the sense like I was like a weird kid who seemed much older than my years and people always like came to me for like adults would come to me for like advice when I was 12 it was like a I was I was a weird kid and I think I always just had the feeling of like most everyone else everybody seems kind of crazy like nobody seems to like nobody seems to have total control of what's going on with them like everybody seems kind of nuts and there just has got to be a way to like live your life on purpose better than what most people seem to be doing I was I think I was just that's what I was always like how do we do this on purpose and not just be like careening through life, <laughs> like yeah. get it, you know, with shit happening to us and just, so I feel like it was like a slow progression in that way. Like I always was into, I like sent myself to, when I was 16, I was like, hi parents, I'd like to go to therapy. And they were like, what? You know, like, wow. just cause I was like, I want to talk about like what the experience of being a human is like and what's going on in my brain and nobody else is talking about that. So find me a professional. And then I was always into therapy and meditation and I went through a yoga phase. It was just, you know, I worked with other coaches. I went, it was just a long progression of like, how do you get better at living a, like living a life, a conscious life with intention that you create on purpose? I think I've always been interested in that. And since you kind of began these practices when you were younger, probably well before other people 
um, adopt them. Like I know for me, I got into meditation just in the last few years because I had to because mm -hmm. my brain is <laughs> fucking crazy, right? And like I got into therapy. I was in therapy when I was younger because everyone was trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, but when I, I got sober six years ago and then I really embraced therapy because I had to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wonder if having that experience of doing these things that um, are incredibly in, uh, beneficial, I don't want to mm -hmm. call them like improvement or yeah. self-help or anything, but um, if you feel like that that benefited you or like set you apart from your peers or gave you an advantage or if you just have more insight. I think that they all helped develop like skills that are now useful to me, but it was, you know, like a meditation or yoga or mindfulness, whatever, but none of them were that helpful at the time because it's it's almost like I was developing skills but I didn't have like a framework to use them in a way that helped me when I found the kind of coaching I do I found my teacher and I found this very kind of analytical way of entering the work all of a sudden everything made more sense to me and then all those tools that I developed could be useful but for most of my life the whole reason I even found my teacher was I was like all right I tried yoga I tried meditation I tried therapy <laughs> like, I tried all these things I still feel crazy right what's happening hey, you um, can't, like therapize yourself out of <laughs> yeah like if my therapy was very talk therapy oriented and I'm well I'm sure it was helpful it was not I don't remember I mean I have a terrible memory so I, if my therapist is listening to this I'm sorry it's probably me I'm sure you tried but I just like didn't I don't remember a lot of conversation of like this is a there was like kind of no cognitive behavioral or or like um dialectical behavioral therapy or any kind of even um like oh, what is it called there's another form oh act like a awareness whatever but I just don't remember any of that it was just like I talk over and over about my negative thoughts and feelings and nothing ever you know changes yeah, yeah I mean I'm a proponent of therapy but I kind of see it in a few different ways so like one I think it is helpful um, to just be kind of guided through your own thoughts mm -hmm. because you come to realizations on your own, right? Like totally. it's through the conversation and that's like CBT. Mm -hmm. But I also think that sometimes it can be, it can kind of reinforce yeah. things um, and maybe help you like you, me, I don't know, just in my experience, um, kind of like stay in like a victim mode or like reinforce a resentment that I have mm -hmm. against somebody. So, um, okay, so I'm curious how you went from there to, um, you went to law school, yeah, right? You went to Yale and then you went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. Okay, smarty pants. <laughs> <laughs> and got your law degree. And um, did you ever plan on going into law or? Yeah, and okay. I did. Okay. I went and so I graduated from law school. I mean, I've always been, the through line is like I've always been a professional feminist in some way. It just used to be political and now it's more mental. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was in the reproductive rights movement. So I went to law school to be a reproductive rights litigator, meaning like to sue, you know, basically sue state and federal governments over restricting access to birth control and abortion and all kinds of reproductive health care. So, yeah, I went to law school. I clerked for a federal judge. I was like getting all of the brass rings like, OK, I'm going to have this going to like rack up these accomplishments that I'm supposed to feel confident at the end of these. So I like and, you know, it, <laughs> it takes the human brain so long to learn things. And if, if you're not if you're trying to learn it organically, you never really get there. Like I kept doing things and being like, OK, well, I went to got to Yale, got into Yale. Oh, I still don't feel confident. Maybe if I go to Harvard. OK, I still don't feel confident. Maybe if I get this. It's like at each stage I was doing like a more and more selective thing. And yet mysteriously, my brain didn't suddenly change itself. I clerked and then I did litigate for two years. I had a reproductive rights fellowship. And like another perfect example, I had got there was one fellowship in the country in my field that year and I got it. I didn't feel confident. Right. I just my imposter syndrome just came with me. 
And then I switched into academia. Same thing. I just <laughs> kept going through the same experience. And at the end of my legal career, I was running a think tank at Columbia Law School. And then, you know, I, the next natural step was to quit the whole thing and become a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do love what you're saying. And I was just having a conversation with somebody before about this. Like, when we're looking for these external things to validate us, we're never going to feel validated. And I think we all know that on, like, a rational level. But we still think that, like, maybe yep. it's going to help, like, move the needle a little bit. And it's very um, crushing, right, <laughs> when you keep hitting those marks yep. and the goalpost keeps moving. Totally. And, um, you know, the, it, it kind of is rewarding for, like, a day. And then <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then when you have that, that realization that, like, it's an inside job. Yeah. Right? So when did you make the decision? Why did you make the decision to leave it all and start your own thing? Yeah. I think that I was lucky in that I was supposed to go on the so running a think tank had evolved out of like a fellowship and I was supposed to go on the um, academic market to get a like teach, you know, to become a law professor. And it's a big procedure. It's not like you send out some resumes. It's like you got to go do these job talks all over the country, which are like 90 minutes long. And then everybody like yells at you about your paper and then you have to like go out to dinner. It's like a whole big process. And then you usually, you know, almost nobody gets to, like, start at NYU or Columbia or Harvard. You got to go, you know, live somewhere else at a quote-unquote lower-ranked school. Whatever. It's all nonsense. But just it was, like, going to be a lot of work and a big life change. And I was sort of like, it would be kind of – like, I don't want to do all that and then two years later be like, now I'm going to become a life coach. It's just like, let's – if we're doing this, we're doing it now. Like, that would be crazy. Um, so I think that, you know, I had that external kind of marker – milestone or deadline that helped but I have to say I did not I think I was so I was extremely attached to like the social and intellectual prestige of my career because that's what I valued myself on at the time and so I don't think my brain could even handle consciously thinking about it I think it was like happening unconsciously I had just found my teacher's work just because I wanted to feel better and I was like applying it to myself and it really changed my life but I wasn't like looking to become a life coach, you know, but then I, I woke my experience of it was that I woke up one morning in like February 2015 and it was like the revelation had arrived overnight and I was like, OK, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to like go become a coach. I'm going to coach lawyers. I had this whole like plan. But I will say maybe six months later, I was out in California seeing a friend of mine who one of those friends were like, when you get together, it's great. You don't really keep in touch in between. So we hadn't been in touch at all. And I was like, big, crazy news. Guess what I'm doing, you know? And she was like, you've been talking about quitting your job and becoming a life coach for years. And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a brand new, crazy decision I've made. She was like, you're always saying, oh, I'm just going to run away to Costa Rica and become a life coach. And I was like, oh, wow. that's true. I did not actually want to move to Costa Rica. Right. The humidity <laughs> is not good for me. But it's like that had been coming out sideways as a joke because my brain couldn't like allow that possibility that's so interesting yeah so it's like I experienced it as this big like shocking revelation but apparently I'd been talking about it for years and right. like not taking it seriously so what was I would imagine that you had fear in that mm -hmm. how did you navigate that I mean I think I had done you know I had one of the most transformative pieces of the early work for me I mean the the fun thing about starting to work on your mind is like it's so hard in the beginning, but also you get to have these like, what? Mind-blowing breakthroughs when once you're, you know, you're more skillful at it, nothing's that shocking, I don't think. Um, and one of them was about failure. Like I had really grown up with a, 
um, fixed mindset of like you just do the things you're naturally good at and it's like humiliating to be bad at something or fail at something and so you never try any of those things if you're not naturally amazing you know just do things you're naturally amazing at where it's safe and you can succeed and one of the first maybe like the fourth maybe podcast of my teachers was Brooke Castillo of the Life Coach School that I ever listened to is about failing on purpose and I was like what <laughs> like what is happening what do you mean <laughs> like it totally blew my mind and so I think like that opened up a lot of the space for me to even think about like you could choose to do something and not know if you're going to be great at it or like, you know, um, but, and then the rest of my fear, I think, was just recognizing. I mean, I, you know, it's one thing to know it intellectually versus really understand it, but that, you know, I had all these thoughts and fears about what other people were going to think. That was like my big hurdle. I wasn't really worried. I mean, should have been more worried about running a business since I had no background in running a business at all and had never displayed any aptitude for making money in the past. So you'd think that would have concerned me, but I wasn't worried about that. I mean, I was just like down the list of worries. I was worried about it, but I was really just mostly worried about what other people would think. Mm -hmm. um, and that was all, of course, just my own thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, you know, I think a mistake, a misapprehension people have is that you need to like work on it until you're not scared and then you'll do the thing. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no. I was, like, terrified and also felt horrible and anxious and ashamed about all the things. I didn't, like, wait till I convinced myself that nobody else would have negative thoughts about it. Also, looking back, like, of course they did. It was a crazy thing to do. Right. Like, like I, my parents really handled it pretty well in retrospect, given that I was like, hi, <laughs> I've never been to business school or had a business you. or I'm just going to quit my job, you know. Right. They were like, what? Yeah, I was curious. I was going to ask you what your family thought about that after, like, the trajectory that you were yeah. on. Yeah. I, you know, at the time, of course, I was like, oh, they don't, whatever. But looking back, I'm like, I think they were pretty supportive, all things considered. <laughs> that was like, I was like having a nervous breakdown, you know. I do remember that I specifically told them at, it was like, every February we used to go to Florida for my grandfather's birthday. And he would have, like, a party with, you know, all the family. It was like a big party. And I remember that I told them at the party because I was like, if they lose their shit, at least, like, we're in public. Uh, they were, like, a little concerned, which was legit, you know. But they were pretty – they would just – my they would send me emails that were sort of like, maybe you want to stay in the fellowship for an extra year. No reason to rush it, you know. Right. But um, once they – they were really only nervous until – once I started making money, they were kind of like, oh, all right, you're going to be okay. That's always what happens, yeah. right? I had the same thing. Like, when I was – when I got sober, I went back to school for counseling, and I was doing this thing that was to help other people. And mm -hmm. um, and I had this Instagram account as a hobby, and it kind of, like, took off. And I had no clue when last year I came to a crossroads where I was like, well, I can't do, like, counseling mm -hmm. and, like – this internet thing, whatever <laughs> right. it is. And um, everyone was like, well, you're doing what? And right. then as soon as like the money comes in and like recognizable brands yeah. or whatever that marker yeah. is, then people are like, oh, okay. And it's yeah. like more validating. Oh yeah. And now my father's like, she learned it all from me. <laughs> <That's so laughs> he cute. has his own business also. So now all the, now it's like, you'd think I was his apprentice right. and protege the whole time. Oh my time. gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> so how did you come up with Unfuck Your Brain? And like, can you define... What, what that means? Yes, okay. I can. Um, so I think on the way that I, my specific version of unfucking your brain is there's two levels. All of us, I think, just humans have to unfuck our brains in the sense of learning how evolution and evolutionary biology have shaped our brains and, and cultural forces. We all have cultural forces, too. Like learning to see how all the things that you think are just true 
are your optional thoughts are not necessarily true and that all the feelings you have that you think are telling you something true about the world are actually coming from your thoughts. So the way I teach it is like your thought causes your feeling. Excuse me. And so we all need to unfuck our brains in the sense of like, I mean, it's hard for me to remember what this is like, but like most people, most of us are going through life just thinking whatever we think and then being like, well, that must be true because I thought it. And so I need to act on it. Right. Or like I have a feeling I should do with the feeling set, like just completely responsive to whatever our brains or bodies are generating and just like acting on that all the time without ever really stopping to think like, where is this coming from? Do I want to rely on it? What's going to happen if I act this way? Like, so I think we all have to do that. And then my version is the feminist version is I think we also society teaches all of us how to think but <clears throat> if you're a woman or part of any other marginalized group you're taught to think in specific ways about yourself and your role and <clears throat> your capabilities in ways that I think you internalize and hold you back and so we have to unfuck all of that social programming to unfuck our brains okay so how do we do that <laughs> so it's really two steps you have to number one just become aware of it I right. think that a lot of women understand conceptually that social you know their social forces or they get social messaging but what they and then but then they have their own self-critical thoughts and what they don't understand is those are the same thing so I think that if your brain said to you like if you looked in the mirror and what your brain said was like in a radio announcer voice like glamour magazine says you have too much cellulite like you wouldn't no, no offense to glamour it's great but like <laughs> you wouldn't be like you would be like that's weird I don't think I think that like that's an external thought right but that's not what happens what happens is like you get all the messages, it goes into your brain, gets all mixed up, and then it comes out in your own voice, which is like, well, I know I should love my body, but I just really think that like my thighs are kind of gross, so I shouldn't wear shorts, right? It comes out as your own mm -hmm. voice, and it just seems like a true thought about yourself. Hmm. And so we have to learn how to recognize that and recognize those patterns, which is why I think, I think what's different about my approach is having that background in feminist theory and then having the legal background. It's like you learn to become a pattern spotter, basically, when you're a lawyer. And that is one of the things that I'm able to do is, is like spot the patterns and be like, okay, see how all of you think this thing? Two options. <laughs> you're all like fundamentally flawed in this exact same magical way, right? Or it's like I just did a retreat in Nashville. I, I had nine women there who are coaches, one of whom's a yoga teacher. But it's like everybody there thinks they're like the one person in the world who's like unworthy in this specific way. And I was like, what's the what are the chances? Like statistically, I got the nine worst people in the world all at this retreat. Right. It's like we start right. to see that. So you have to learn how to spot it and then you have to learn how to change it. And then that's the second part of the work is working on shifting your thoughts. And I think because I come from a very like intellectually rigorous background but also I'm just whether I don't know people who are into astrology are always like you're such a Taurus but I'm just very grounded and practical so it's not like positive manifestations or vibrations or like you know it's like I'm very like okay what's the terrible thought you think about yourself okay what's a slightly less terrible version of that that we could practice instead and like move our way up what I call the thought ladder so you're like really getting concrete about shifting your neural pathways little bit by little bit and then that builds over time until the new one becomes the default but I'm very focused on like the how to how do you actually do that as opposed to just like that's a good idea so if you can figure out how to change your thoughts go for it right yeah and the neurons that fire together wire together totally. right yeah <laughs> okay I have kind of an unreal well you mentioned evolution yeah I'm just curious this is kind of like a side note but do you think our brains are like way more fucked now because from an evolutionary mm -hmm. standpoint like even just in the past 
10 years now that we're staring at a screen all day being bombarded with pictures of like photoshop people and Mm -hmm. like i don't think our brains are meant to like wake up and have a screen in front of it do you think that we're more fucked now (laughs) than we were um I, so I guess my answer is yes and no. I mean, as a coach, I'm always like, all these thoughts could be true. I don't know. Um, I do definitely teach like when I like, for instance, when I do body image work with people, I'm like, you need to clean up your Instagram feed. Like, don't have people on there. Don't have if you're a size 20 short brunette, don't have an Instagram feed full of size two nine foot tall blonde people like mm-hmm. that's not, you know. Um, so you want to be looking at people who look like you at least as much as you're looking at people who don't look like you. So I do think that that has some impact. But I also think if you look at historically, every time we invent a new technology, humans like freak out about how it's replacing the old one and everything's going to hell. So when they invented the printing press, people were like, now no one's going to value books anymore and the monks. And then they invented the phone and everybody was like, no one's going to value letters anymore. This is the downfall of civilization. And it sounds silly to us, but if you go back and look, they were like very serious. Mm-hmm. People were like, now that there are phones, humans will forget how to write right. and the uh, the art of letters will be lost, right? And it was like a, there was like a moral panic about it. So I just think every time we invent a new technology, it's like first we use it for sex, then we use it to like for amusement and distraction, and then we decide it's ruining things. Like right. people were writing similar shit about seriously like serialized novels in victorian newspapers that we now consider the classics of literature and like old and boring and back right. then they were like scandalous <laughs> and ruining you know the nation's young women so right. i take all that with a grain of salt just because i don't think it's help like for me the question is always is a thought helpful so if you think staring at a phone isn't good for me and that helps you stare at it less and you feel better great but often when we tell ourselves like modern technology is going to entrap us like then we just feel like a victim and trapped and you know powerless and that's not helpful Mm -hmm. yeah I love that perspective okay I'm going to shift my thinking around (laughs) that okay so I'm curious what are the most kind of what are the most prevalent issues that you're Mm -hmm. seeing coming up with your with the people you work with so I think I mean you know I attract obviously people who my work is feminist mindset work so that's who I get um and I think all of it comes down to confidence in one way or another. Um, but I think the ways that that manifest are uh, people-pleasing, which if you listen to the podcast, you know I call people deceiving because people-pleasing sounds so nice and we all think that means we're like good people. So then we like lean into it. And we're like, I'm just a people-pleaser. But actually you're just lying about what you think and feel to someone else to try to get them to like you. <laughs> so people-pleasing is a big one. I think imposter syndrome right comes up a lot and – Imposter syndrome is associated, I think, sometimes with a certain kind of professional job, but really I see women having that in all areas of their lives, um, including, like, being a mother. Like, it sounds funny to be like, I have imposter syndrome about being a mom, but a lot of women do kind of like, I'm not a good mom, and people are going to find out, and I'm not suited to this, and I don't know how to do it, and, you know. Um, so I think imposter sy- syndrome, people-pleasing, I think, uh, I don't know, I don't have a catchy term for this, but it's, like, external validation-seeking, like, just... When you don't, it's like not having your own back. When you don't have your own back, when you don't have a good self-regard, when you don't have a, when you don't like yourself, you're just constantly, I call it like the emotional vending machine. You're just constantly trying to push buttons on the outside world or other people to like spit out some validation for you. And that can be your whole life is like running around trying to punch the buttons in to get some validation. I think that's a big one. But I think, I mean, it all I think comes down to like, there's just the human element of it and then there's the specific kind of 
way that women are taught to think about themselves in, in our society, which is that they should always worry more about what other people think and other people should be happy first and it's selfish for women to care about themselves. Like, I just don't think men are taught that in the same way. Mm-hmm. So how do we retrain our brains around this? I know that you have a, <laughs> this is what you do. Yeah. So go work with Cara. But <laughs> <laughs> Come join the clutch. Um, well, really, because it is, I can like talk about the overall, but it's so specific, right? Everybody has their own version of the thought. And interestingly, like a lot of people have the same original thought, but when you're trying to find a thought that can be the next thing someone's going to practice thinking, it like varies hugely. Like a thought that worked great for someone else will like not feel good to you. And then, you know, so I, it's not like I can say sort of like, I, what I do is teach people how to figure out which thoughts will work for them mm-hmm. and then how to practice them. But the way we change it is really just that same process of like we have to develop awareness. So we have to like have a process for getting our thoughts out of our head and down on paper so we can start to look at them. And then we have to go one by one and work on shifting them. The good news is that it seems like you have 10 million thoughts, but it's actually like five thoughts in different costumes. So in the beginning, it can seem overwhelming. But after a while, you start to be like, oh, it's you again. Okay, I know what I'm practicing thinking about that. It's, you know, on a podcast, especially, or in a book or whatever, it's like you're, you're trying to speak at this level of generality. But one of the most important insights I have for anybody trying to do this work is to not try to coach themselves at that level of generality. Like, ultimately, every coaching call could boil down to, you don't think you're good enough. Let's talk about that, right? But when we're talking about it at that level of abstractness, it's like a narrative. We can't Mm -hmm. do anything about it. And everybody thinks that they should come in and, like, work on their self-esteem in some general sense, and that'll filter down. But it's the opposite. You have to work on each individual little situation in the beginning, and that builds up. So when somebody's like, I need to work on my self-confidence I'm like okay what's the last time yesterday when did you feel insecure oh you were in Starbucks and the person ahead of you ordered a whatever and then you started thinking that the barista didn't like you like that's what we're going to work on so it's the opposite of what you would expect you really have to like dig into the specific details of your day your thoughts and then how you're going to shift that thought a little bit Mm -hmm. does it do all these thoughts kind of boil down to like insecurity and not feeling enough and not feeling worthy or I mean I feel like um when you really get down to it again not to generalize but it would all kind of be from like the same root yeah I think a lot of it is that I mean I don't know if it's all that but yeah I think a lot of it is that like Mm -hmm. and I have a colleague who's (laughs) like the opposite coaching I do she's a Mormon coach for um some Mormon oh coach for Mormon women she has this episode that she talks about it as like the human void. It's just this like that everybody has this kind of emptiness, I, which is not exactly how I think about it. But it's like I understand that episode because so many people seem to have the same experience of like having that, you know, not feeling secure and not feeling safe or not feeling worthy or whatever it is. But I do think that that's mostly learned because some people don't have that. You know, mm-hmm. it can get disproportionate. It's like it's a. There's a selection bias because all I do is talk to people who want coaching all the time, right? So there's people out there who – there's some people out there who need coaching and don't know it, but there's some people out there who feel fine. They don't feel unworthy or whatever else, right, or at least not a majority of the time. So I try to be mindful that, like, my section of the world (laughs) is all people with brains like mine. Right. But if you have a brain like mine, yes, I think it mostly boils down to, like, there's something – like, a lot of people seem to believe – that there's something mysterious wrong with them that they can't put their finger on and they can't explain and they can't fix, but that everybody else is going to find out about. Mm -hmm. And I always say, like, if you're always looking for something to fix, you're always going to feel broken. Yeah. 
and you'll always find something to fix. Right. And you'll never be better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It'll just keep moving. Mm -hmm. Right. People do that with their bodies. Like like plastic surgery, I think is fascinating because for a lot of people, they like they're obsessed with this one thing that if they just change that, they're going to love how they look. And then they change it. I can speak to this. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, And then like I wanted to talk for two days, it feels great. And then your brain finds another thing because you've trained your brain to look for flaws. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's going to do. Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about that. Um, Part of your work is helping women retrain their brains around liking themselves and being happy with themselves and their appearance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I have had plastic surgery, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I was just on a podcast this morning, and they were trying to, like, get to the root of it. I'm very open about Mm -hmm. it because I feel like... um, I don't know. I just don't think that there should be a stigma no. so much around yeah, it. So many people do. Yeah. And, and I, I think that people have unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. nowadays. And so like, while I don't encourage it, I'm mm-hmm. also like, Hey, this is what I did. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, um, for me, so I got my nose done a few years ago. I had wanted to do it since I was 10 ish. Mm-hmm. So do with that what you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I got to a place where I was like, okay, I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. Like, I still am unhappy with this thing. I'm fulfilled in the rest of mm-hmm. my life. So, um, and it actually, like, it didn't make me happy. Mm-hmm. But now I love my nose. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, um, so it wasn't like an unhealthy thing. Mm-hmm. It is a slippery slope because, well, one, I live in L.A. So it's mm-hmm. like, it really is like um, getting a coffee, like <laughs> getting plastic <laughs> surgery done. <laughs> and once you have that in your head, at least for me, mm-hmm. um, once I realized how easy it was to like, oh, I can just make a little yeah. change. Like, that's not a big deal. And like right. five days and I'm good to go. Yeah. Then I'm like, oh, what else can I do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's where I think it gets a little bit sticky. But can you talk about like how you work with women um, or, or what the goal is when you retrain thinking around that? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, to me, it's never about what I would call the A line is called it's like the action line. Like it's never any action can feel a different way depending on what you're thinking and feeling about it, right? So you can get plastic surgery and it can feel amazing or you get plastic surgery and it can feel terrible, right? It all has to do with what you're thinking and feeling. So it sounds like in your case, you had done a lot of work on yourself in your life. And so then it was like, it wasn't like, okay, if I just change my nose, then I can love myself, <laughs> right? I think right. that's where people go wrong. Yeah. yeah. So I totally, obviously don't think there should be a stigma at all. And I think like anything you can, that's what's so fascinating about being a human is like, we're always trying to take action to solve our feeling problems and then we're like <clears throat> I don't know I took the action I took the action that you know it doesn't feel better because it's not going to come that way so I think for me the goal is always like I teach with everything I teach and it's not just body like love it before you decide to change it mm-hmm. right so if you're unhappy in your marriage learn to love your marriage before you decide if you want to change it if you're unhappy in your job learn to love your job before you decide to change it if you're unhappy with your body learn to love it before you decide to change it because what people don't understand is that because we're so fixated on this idea that the outside circumstance causes our feelings and our thoughts, we're just like, if I just change that damn outside circumstance, everything's going to be fine. And what we don't understand is that your brain has habits and you're training it to think a certain way. So it's like training a puppy not to go to the bathroom, like to go to the bathroom inside for a year and then expecting it to magically go outside if you change houses, right? You tra- If you train your brain to look for what's wrong in a relationship and how the person isn't making you feel the way you want to feel – You can leave that person and marry someone else and you're going to have the same damn problem, right? And if you train your brain to look for what's wrong with the job, same thing. It's like people want to complain their way to happiness. It doesn't work that way. And so with our bodies too, like learn to love what you have 
then if you want to change it, you can change it, but it won't matter because you'll, you've developed the skill of loving your body, right? And, like, imagine some people go into plastic surgery wanting, or whatever it is, weight loss, whatever they do, like, wanting to come out a certain way so they can love themselves, and then sometimes they come out that way, and then they're like, well, that's weird. That didn't work. Right now i got to do something else. Or it doesn't go the way they thought it would, right? And now, like, that's not a good outcome either, right? Something goes wrong. Like, if, you lo- if you've learned how to love your body the way it is, then whatever, and especially with bodies, like, we're all going to age, right? Our right. bodies are going to change. Change is the nature of the universe. And as humans, I think we're always trying to, like, hold it still. We just, we're like, if it's good, we're like, it has to stay exactly this way if we think that things are good, right? So we don't want anything to change. And we're, like, very... like vigilant about making sure nothing changes what's good and if it's bad quote unquote then we're like okay I gotta get it good right but our bodies are such that's why we have so much trouble with our bodies I think they're such a daily reminder that like we can't control everything and that life is temporary and Mm -hmm. like we're all gonna get wrinkles we're all gonna get older we're all gonna get saggy we're all gonna get whatever and so I like learn to love it now Mm -hmm. like wherever you are you're at the peak of conforming to traditional (laughs) beauty standards now that you can so we should all do that work now and I know that like I definitely and I and I have some you know it's not like nobody can see me on here it's not like I benefit from some conventional beauty privilege whatever like I'm a fat woman but I'm very hourglassy and very femme and I have clear skin and long hair and whatever right so it's not like I don't benefit from any of that but I for sure am so much more confident in my 30s than I was in my 20s when I was much thinner because of my thoughts and my mind. And I see like people around me. I, when I have friends who have had an enormous amount of validation for their looks their whole life and have had like, you know, just the world treat them a certain way because they really fit a conventional beauty standard. It's so hard for them to deal with aging mm-hmm. and like losing that pretty privilege. And it's it's such a losing game for women because the standard is like a 17 year old. (laughs) So it's like 21, you're already on your way out and downhill, you know, in a way it isn't for men. Men get to be the silver fox. And we've all decided like one woman is allowed to be sexy over 60. It's like Helen Mirren is it. That's it for everybody. (laughs) The rest of us need to be 17. So it's a, it's a, can be a slog that work. It can be really Mm -hmm. like repetitive work you have to keep doing in some ways, but it's so freeing. Like now when I work with people who are still in it, it's like hard to remember that I used to spend all day, every day thinking about like, what did I eat and was it too much? And what am I going to eat tomorrow? And what does my body look like? And it isn't good. I mean, just constant chatter. Like there's no way I could have built a seven figure coaching business in three years and had that mental chatter. Like it's such an energy suck. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of it, um, and kind of going back to what you were saying before about like being so like things are good now and I'm and you don't want them to change and you're yeah. like that all causes us to not live in the present moment yeah totally. and like if you're not present you what's the point capable of like feeling any right. gratitude or like appreciation right we're like things are good now so I need to be very vigilant to make sure they're good in the future so that right. in the future I can enjoy them but I'm not going to enjoy them now right. right now I need to yeah exactly yeah. same thing so I also want to talk about um, kind of differentiating between self-love mm-hmm. um, and liking ourselves because mm. self-love, especially in like the industry, wellness mm-hmm. industry, is kind of like a hot topic right now. Yeah. And um, I, th- I think it's very marketable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so can you talk about the difference between those? Yeah. And I would actually talk about the difference like between self-acceptance also, right? Yeah. Because I think s- thinking that we should like ourselves or we should love ourselves can just become another thing we're like failing at. Mm. 
And to me, self-acceptance on some level is the deepest because it's like I can accept even when I don't love my body or myself. I can like I can notice and observe these thoughts. I can have hold space for myself even when I'm not liking myself. It's like that next level. Um, in terms of self-like versus self-love, I don't know that I use when I use self-love, what I really mean is like it's really like having your own back, which to me means like you're never going to abandon yourself for someone else's opinion or someone else's desires or like you're just never going to kind of be mean to yourself or take someone else's side against yourself. Like self-respect. Yeah, but it's almost like it's like self-partnership, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you like my last long term relationship ended a year ago and. I'm and I bought myself this ring, which I'm wearing right now, which is a um, it's a French design called a moi toile ring, which is traditionally an engagement ring. It's um a black, it's black and white. It's like a black stone and a white stone. And I picked it because I was like, and there was nothing wrong with that relationship. It wasn't codependent. It was a lovely relationship, and now I'm dating, and that's enjoyable too. But it just was this pause for me in this in the space of my romantic life, where I was like, okay, my I am my own partner first and foremost, and that's the most important partnership I have, right? Mm -hmm. I'm never going to, like, abandon that. And and this is, like, even in the context of having, like, lovely, healthy relationships. It's not like I was in a codependent nightmare and I was like, okay, I have to learn to be nice to myself. But it was just this reminder of, like, being single doesn't mean I'm alone. I'm in a, I'm always my own partner. And to, so to me, that's, like, just like you would say, your, your husband or your wife or your partner is, like, your main person, your main priority, it's like, you know, you have to have that relationship with yourself first. So to me, I don't know, self-love, self-life, self-like, self-acceptance. It's like, that's what that really means. Mm -hmm. And like, it has nothing to do with like what you eat or if you go to the gym or like, like whether you get acupuncture. <laughs> yeah, like whatever. Which, that should give me nice, right? But you can love yourself. You can loathe yourself eating a salad and you can love yourself eating cake. It doesn't have anything to do with the, again, it's never the action. It's like, what's the thought and feeling behind it? Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that we can kind of foster our relationship with ourselves so I really like to um as a contrast to think about the way that you most people have a pet or have had a pet so to think about the way that you love a pet which is like they don't have to do anything my cat does nothing <laughs> I have to take care of him he mm -hmm. contributes nothing he only wants something from me at the most inopportune time for myself I had to interrupt a podcast I recorded yesterday three times because he insisted on eating a plant and throwing it up and I still totally love him, right? He doesn't have to do anything to deserve my love. He doesn't have to return it. He does not validate me, that is for sure. But a lot of people have had, like, a pet or an animal that they love unconditionally. And I think, like, as a thought experiment, that can be a good entry just into, like, what would it be like to love yourself or someone else in your life the way you love a pet? Which is, like, unconditional love and no question about their worthiness. Even when you're mad at them, you still love them, right? Even when you're yelling, like, stop eating the plant. Why are you doing this? It's like you still love them. Yeah. They're you're, perfect. Yeah. They you're are. never, like, you are an unworthy cat. It doesn't even make sense to try to talk about it that way. Like, right. you are morally unworthy as a cat. That doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but that's how we think about ourselves. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So I'm curious if you could tell the listeners to do one thing for themselves today or start doing mm -hmm. one thing like adopt a new habit mm -hmm. what would it be well obviously they should listen to the podcast given go listen on <laughs> fuck your brain given and listen um i think you know, we haven't talked about this a lot because we've been talking a lot about thoughts but a really important part of my work is teaching people how to allow and process their emotions which most of us don't want to do 
So most of us are running around like chickens with our heads cut off all the time, just trying to make bad emotions go away, right? Or avoid them. We're just like, oh, I feel anxious. What can I do to not feel anxious anymore, right? And that can be like, maybe I'll send a text. Maybe I'll drink wine. Maybe I'll watch Netflix. Maybe I'll do all three things at once and see if that, like we're constantly trying to escape from negative emotion. And so I could say like, do a five minute thought download where you write your thoughts out and pick a thought to change. But honestly, the thing you can do on the go anywhere is to practice allowing and processing an emotion, which the way I teach it basically means to identify the physical sensations in your body and to repeat them to yourself in like a body scan in a very concrete way. So if I'm feeling anxious, I would say, and I still do this, I would say to myself, okay, as opposed to thinking, oh, I'm so anxious because blah, 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 or even I'm so anxious because my thought is blah, 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 which is still just repeating the thought and telling myself I'm anxious, right? I would say like, okay, what do I feel like right now? My heart feels like it's going a little bit fast. I feel a little bit of hollowness in my chest. And this is like real right now what I'm feeling. Like not because of this podcast. <laughs> just, because <laughs> <laughs> just from like rushing around this morning uh-huh. and not having eaten probably. But like it'd be like, okay, I feel a little bit of hollowness in my chest. I feel like my heart is going a little fast. It's like a little hard to take a full breath. That's it. All that's happening right now is that my heart's going a little fast. And even that's like too subjective probably. And there's a little hollowness in my chest. Like, really reducing it to the physical sensations, it signals to your brain. When you're constantly trying to run away from an emotion, what you're teaching your brain is that your emotions are dangerous and they need to be avoided at all cost. And that's how we end up with, like, everybody in the country being addicted to gambling and porn and drinking and Netflix and everything else, right? Because we're just, like, constantly trying to get dopamine to drown out our negative emotions or distract ourselves. And so when you do that, you signal to your brain that, like, Everything's okay. We're not dying. The house is not burning down. It's just a little hot in here. And it distracts your brain from just ruminating on the thought causing the anxiety. You give it something else to do. Mm -hmm. So doing that practice of like processing an emotion whenever you feel a negative emotion coming up, I think that's the single biggest thing that would change somebody's life just by practicing it today. I'm going to start doing that today. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, really powerful. And I remember when I first started doing it, having like, I used, it's actually fascinating to, I have like whatever things going on in my life right now that are. I have a little bit of anxiety, which I have. I used to be anxious all the time. Then I found this work and I worked on it. And then I really don't get anxious anymore, ever. And like having it come up, I'm like, this is fascinating. What is this? It's so much lighter than it used to be. But I remember when I first did this, having like incredibly intense anxiety and doing that exercise like in a cab on Mercer Street. I have this very specific memory of just being like, I was going somewhere and I was in that cab and I was just like, my heart is beating fast. My face is hot. My heart is beating fast. My face is hot. That's all that's happening. I'm safe. I'm not dying. And just like doing that over and over again. And when you do that enough, you teach your body not to freak out and to allow the emotion. Mm -hmm. And it passes so much more quickly. It's like we think we don't want to lean into feeling it because that's going to feel so bad. Right. But actually, it's the resistance that feels terrible and perpetuates it. Yeah. Because your brain is like, hey, I got to tell you something. And you're like, la, 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 I can't hear you. And it's like your brain's like, oh, I should be louder. I guess I should yell. She has her fingers in her ears. Let me be louder. Whereas if you're like, oh, tell me your message. Okay, let me process it. Okay. It goes, it passes so much more quickly. Something for me that was pretty astounding was when I started meditating. Mm-hmm. I, I do TM mm-hmm. and I used to do like apps and all that, but I didn't really find it beneficial. And um, when I was able to, and people don't have to meditate for 20 minutes mm-hmm. twice a day, even totally. just for two minutes. Yeah. When I was able to see how quickly my thoughts pass mm-hmm. through my brain. Yeah. Um. I I almost couldn't believe, and I still do this, but like how 
I can attach myself to one when it's mm-hmm. really just like we all right. have monkey brain, right? Yeah. It's uh, just electrical signals up in there, but we're like, this thought is my identity. Right. Like, what if it's just not even true? Yeah. Do you recommend people meditate? Sure. I mean, my experience, and I think for a lot of my clients, is like we can meditate better after we've learned thought work right. because it was so excruciating in the beginning and we're so anxious. Um, and I think because a lot of people misunderstand meditation, like what you're describing is like observing the thoughts that go by, but people think they're supposed to have an empty brain when they meditate. Mm-hmm. So they just get really stressed out about how they're still thinking. Yeah, it's that resistance. Yeah. So, and just like, and I think like literally misunderstanding what's supposed to happen. Or what they're trying to get to. Like, you can't tell yourself not to think, right? It uh, doesn't work. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, absolutely. Like, I think, obviously, meditation, there's MRI studies that show what it does to the brain. Um, I think, you know, depending on what your goal is, like, for me, it wasn't just stress reduction, but also, like, how do I create this life that I want? And so, for me, like, one of the things that coaching offers is a active framework for, like, continually pushing myself towards discomfort, resolving it and being able to move forward and then doing that again and again. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I don't know if you can speak to this, but you've built a seven figure business in what, four years? Yeah. Three years. How did you do? (laughs) Seriously? Thought work. It's really like, it really is like, I think that the biggest thing about thought work is that willingness to feel uncomfortable. Like the reason most people don't who want, not that everybody should have a business, but if you want one, right, the reason most people don't have what they want in any area of their life is they're not willing to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think often, especially with money and business, people think, oh, I want to make that money so I can be comfortable. And if that's your motivation, you'll never do it because you have to be so uncomfortable on the way that if the goal is comfort, you're just going to give up, right? You have to have a bigger goal. And so for me, I have a mission goal, which like is about reaching women all over the world with this work. I really feel like like what I'm doing is teaching women how to liberate themselves from the inside out, and every woman needs to know how to do that. So I feel like I am on a global mission, and that's motivating. And I think the business and money are part of how I make that possible, right? A seven-figure business reaches a lot more people than somebody giving out free coaching sessions in the lobby. So Mm -hmm. there's that. But also my desire to blow my own mind with what I can create, which is like we could have a whole other podcast on money mindset, but like I didn't, you know... I had to do a lot of work on my money mindset. I did not, like I said, I had no background in business. I made like a decent salary as a nonprofit lawyer, but it's not like bringing in the big bucks. You know, like I had never expected myself to be someone who could make money. Mm -hmm. I didn't think, I thought I could make like a night, a little amount of, like a decent, okay life amount of money. You know, but I did not by any means think I could just decide how much money I wanted to make and go do that and create that. I had to do so much work on myself on my own thoughts. And I, I almost hate that term because it's not to improve myself. It's just like, these are the thoughts I have and I'm getting these results. I want a different result. I'm going to have to change my thought. It's not a moral issue. It's just, I want to have a business. Right now, my thoughts are leading to no business. So I need to change my thoughts. Right. So it was a lot of thought work around like selling, my money mindset. I used to be so uncomfortable. I was on a lot of like nonprofit boards when I did reproductive justice work. I was uncomfortable fundraising for nonprofits that I believed in. I'm not even getting the money and it's for a good cause and it's still <laughs> excruciating. So I think people sometimes now listen to me and they're like, well, you, you're like natural at selling things. I'm like, no, I had to do a lot of work on it. So the answer really is like thought work, doing the daily grind of being like, it's like this dialectic kind of, it's like you do thought work, you get a little more comfortable with this little thing. So you can do that thing. Then you're like super uncomfortable again. Then you do that. Like 
you just and you just keep doing that and then you make a million dollars. That's what happens. And there you have there it. There you go. <laughs> well, how can people work with you and where can they find you? Yeah. So you can find the podcast anywhere. Unfuck I mean anywhere you can get podcasts. Unfuck your brain. Um and then the way to work with me is through the clutch, which is my favorite thing in the whole world right now. It is my feminist coaching community and it's I felt like there was a big gap in the spaces in the world. There's like a lot of coaching spaces where people don't have a political lens or consciousness and it's very like vague and aspirational. And then there was a lot of social justice feminist spaces online that are very intensely judgmental and kind of validating. And I, that's not really what I, I'm not a big validator, <laughs> more of a tough love. There like wasn't a space for people who do have those feminist commitments. And by that, I don't mean like, you know, you went to Radcliffe and you like won't I whatever the stereotype you burn right. your bras, whatever the stereotype is, right? Just women who are conscious that like they're taught to think about themselves as women in a certain way and that they have certain patterns and that they want to work on those. Um, there wasn't a space for like that kind of consciousness and really deep. I don't use the term spiritual because that's not how I think about it, but it is like deep self work that traditionally I think is associated with spiritual pursuits. There wasn't a space for that where it's there's like we're taking responsibility for everything going on with ourselves and we are learning and in community and in conversation around those things. So that's the kind of like that's why I wanted to create the space. Um, but it's in more understandable layperson terms, <laughs> it's like a membership community where you <laughs> learn how to do exactly what I've been describing. I teach you how to process your emotions. I teach you how to figure out what you're thinking. Most people have no idea what they're thinking. You think you do. It's like the tip of the iceberg. Access all those unconscious thoughts that are basically running your whole life without your awareness and how to shift them little bit by little bit. And then, of course, like that's the meta skill. And then we have, you know, specific like modules and programs for all the main things women struggle with, which is like their relationships, dating, work, their body image, you know, parenting, money, all that kind of stuff. So. It's the best thing ever. It's just like. I'm literally joining today. Yes, so. do it. It's so fun. <laughs> and everyone should do it with me. And you're a badass. I <laughs> love talking to you and listening to you. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And everyone can find you where? Instagram? Yes. Uh, um, unfuckyourbrain.com uh, or forward slash the clutch. And then, yeah, I, I have a hard to spell, but unique name. So Cara Lowenthal, if you Google, if you get anyone named anything close to that, it's me. <laughs> just Google it. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure.